Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the East Asia Now podcast. My name is David Fields, and I'm the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am joined today by Jean-Francois de Meglio, President of the Asia Center, a Paris-based independent research institute focused on matters relating to international, strategic, and economic relations, as well as the political and social transformations underway in the Asia-Pacific region. He is also a professor at the Paris School of International Affairs, Science Po Paris. A graduate of the École Normale Supérieure in Paris and Peking University, Jean-Francois spent more than 20 years in a major French financial institution working in Asia. From 2005 to 2008, he was in charge of the energy and raw materials sector in China for BNP Paribas. He joined the Asia Center in May 2008 to apply his knowledge of the business world and Asia before becoming president in 2009. He is the author of several books, numerous articles, and is a regular commentator on China for international media, especially France 24. He is currently the 2023 recipient of the James B. McDonald Distinguished Professorship at the UW-Madison Law School. Jean-Francois, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted. So we always start this podcast episode by trying to get the backstory of the guest out there. How did you come to do what you do. So why China? Why finance? Why energy? Well, that's a, that's a big question. And of course, uh, probably I'm not the best person to answer because you never know why you did what you did. Um, let's say, let's say I'm, I'm coming from a very uh, traditional background in, in, in French studies, which is uh, classical studies. And uh, by the end of the 20th century, when you've been studying you know, Latin and Greek, you may ask yourself, what's the purpose of it and what's your future in the 21st century world? So it so happened that uh, I got an idea that uh, the East was rising in a way and a few things were happening in China. Then I went to China in 1979, which was a very interesting time for, for modern China because that was the opening up of China. And I didn't know at the time whether that would become a real interest for me or just, you know, a kind of a bracket in my academic life or professional life. Then when I came back, uh, there was a craze in France for people uh, knowing about what was going then. then. And uh, I was hired by a bank who was interested in knowing more about uh, China and having people in the know to be sent uh, to the ground when uh, the market would open. And then I went in 93 to Taiwan, when I ran the bank operation between 93 and 97. And then I became one of the Asia men at the BNP Paribas, which I left afterwards. Uh, and then um, why so, uh, and why the uh, think tank now? Because, of course, uh, finance has a purpose, and you cannot challenge that. But I didn't feel that... There was enough of a purpose for me, and that was enough for me in contributing to the world by only doing finance. So I had possibly some knowledge and some uh, network and some experience or maybe writing and uh, working with academics, and that's what brought me to what I'm doing. It's interesting to hear the different paths 
into the careers that people find themselves in. It's rarely ever a straight line and a, a straight trajectory. That's right. In France, actually, it's kind of a piece of luck because uh, France is, uh, I would say, uh, not working this way. When you are in a channel, you usually stay in a channel as opposed to the Anglo-Saxon world. So I was very lucky in that, in that way. So this week, you're giving a lecture on campus called Being Assertive with China, a European Perspective. Can you give us a brief overview of the European landscape in relation to perspectives on China? What are the views and where are the fault lines? Well, I think um, since uh, the opening up of China, which I alluded to, uh, both uh, Europe in a certain way and the U.S., the whole Western world, uh, lived a kind of uh, China dream uh, in a sense that... uh, China would be exactly the way we want it to be. And every time we had cross-checks that, yes, it happened the way we wanted it to happen, we were convinced that we were right and we were not listening to the weak or not so weak signals that China was sending us. And now people are a little bit at a loss about the strong signals that China is sending about, yes, being more assertive, because if you remember in the 90s and the beginning of the 21st century, uh, China was and Chinese uh, authorities were playing low profile, even though China was already rising, but they were playing it low profile. Now they're playing high profile, and we're a little bit at odds with this new scenario that they're writing. We are at odds because... It's a new scenario, but we are also at odds because we don't know whether that's a true scenario or whether it's only an ambition which China may match or may not match. It sounds very similar to a lot of American thinking on, yes, on yes. China right now. Yes. Has, has the experiment that's been running for the last 40 years proven a failure? Or does it need more time? It, it sounds like that's the, the issue that you're grappling with as well. Well, if, if, if you look at the benefits... It's not totally a failure because uh, we kind of subcontracted our growth and our prosperity to China. Conversely, China subcontracted its own efforts to growth and to modernizing itself to our capital because the Western world invested in China and the Western world uh, subcontracting in manufacturing in China. So we got cheap prices and China got growth. In a way, it's not a failure because that brought us to where we are, uh, China, Asia as well, because in a way, Asia uh, has grown the same way as China and benefited from it. And uh, no need to say, um, it might be a bit blunt, but the U.S. financed their deficit thanks to China. Yeah. We all know that. Yeah. So uh, it's not a failure in that way. What is a failure is our uh, incapacity, should I say, to play with different scenarios at the same time, which is a strength that Chinese leaders have. Mm-hmm. They always play with many, many cards. And our uh, mistake, probably, was to play with only one set of cards. I see. And... Why do you think China has a better advantage of of playing multiple strategies at once and maybe we struggle to do that? And and by we, I guess I'm talking generally about both the United States and Europe. Well, as Chinese would say, 
is an old country <laughs> with a very long history, so they know a lot. But on top of this, I would say um, uh, China has an edge on us because it's coming from a, an era which is very, very close, like 40, 50 years ago, where prosperity was not there. And whatever happens, uh, Chinese authorities and even, I would say, majority of Chinese people can buy the bullet. They can take the grant. Uh, this is an advantage. Yes. Uh, the other advantage is that China remains a country where strategic thinking is very, very strong. You go to any school, you read any book, strategic thinking is always there. And I think this is a feeling, it's a sense, it's a concept that we tend to lose because, again, this dream of the end of the Cold War, the fact that, you know, the world would be exactly as we want it to be and that we were the masters of the world. Uh, Chinese uh, don't think they have won. Uh, Chinese leaders don't think that they have an edge. They always feel threatened. They feel encircled and they feel threatened. So interesting. So there's certainly a debate going on in the United States right now as to what our China policy should be. And actually much of the debate right now in the House is actually being cast by Mike Gallagher, who is a representative from Wisconsin. It seems also that there's a similar debate going on in Europe. So at the macro level, are there differences between the way American and European policymakers think about China and what the best strategy towards China should be? Well, the main difference is that you are one country. <laughs> sure. And we are 27 countries. Although you know? sometimes it feels like we're at least two countries. but <laughs> It's true. It's true. But uh, if you look at what becomes more and more bipartisan policy, yeah. you do have convergences. Which, which we do towards China right now, for better or for worse. Absolutely. Sometimes Absolutely. I fear for the worse. But and, <laughs> go ahead. And if you look at France and Germany, those are not two political parties, but they are feeling a little bit differently because France has a deficit with China. We have like a 80 billion euro deficit with the world uh, totally, and half of it is with China. So China, uh, France has a China deficit issue. Germany is all the opposite. German exports go to China and uh, German cars go to China. Uh, so there is a vested interest in Germany not to be too blunt with China. So it took time before we come to the point where we are now, where we are really asking existential questions, I would say, about should we change our China policy, which was very lenient. The fear that Europeans have, having said that, is to be the adjustment variable in the fight or the commercial war or the war between China and the U.S. Because uh, we are, uh, of course, in the middle of it. We have interests in China. We have interests in the U.S. We belong to the Western camp, and we belong, it, we belong to it more and more since the Ukraine war, of course. But having said that, we cannot all of a sudden decouple and we cannot all of a sudden leave whatever we have at stake in China. I actually think the United States might be in a similar situation, except some of us believe we can decouple with China. It, I, have, I have a sense that it'll actually be much more difficult than anybody imagines. But if you hear American policymakers right now, for many of them, that seems to be their priority. And they seem 
to be trying to communicate that this is possible. Yeah, the key word, as you know, in Europe is de-risking, yeah. which is lowering the, the level of risk we, 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 we have vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, even if decoupling would happen, it would take a lot of time to, to decouple for the US, for Europe, for, 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 for anyone. Um, the, the, key, the key point is that uh, China is at a very, very low point in its economy for the moment. And I think the turning point would be for the Chinese authorities to sincerely recognize it. Of course, you can see every day in the recent weeks uh, um, Chinese authorities opening back up again and saying we are open for business, we are open to foreigners. To which point this is sincere, yeah. to which point this really will happen, it remains to be seen. If ever Chinese authorities, Chinese corporates would sincerely, sincerely seek cooperation, I think things would be much, much, much easier. So you may put the blame on U.S. authorities sometimes, but I think the blame is also, by large, in the new uh, positioning of Chinese authorities and the new Chinese policy. Since you mentioned the state of the Chinese economy right now, uh, there's, there's a debate going on as to whether this is a, a temporary downturn or whether maybe this is the new reality. And I know one of our, uh, one of our alums, Nick Lardy, at the Peterson Institute was just involved in a debate along these lines with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I know The Economist just published a piece this week asking, you know, is, is China entering a lost decade of the sort, you know, that Japan experienced in the 1990s and, and really more than a decade? And w what are your thoughts on that, knowing that, you know, nothing is certain right now, but when you look at the state of the Chinese economy, where, where would you come down on that if you, if you had to choose? My, my, my take would be that most probably what we see now is the tide receding, mm. meaning that there was an inflow of money coming from outside, coming from the Chinese government, and this money is drying down. So as this money is drying down, you can see the reality, and the reality is that you have lots of difficulties in the Chinese economy uh, to finance growth. The ambition of the uh, New Silk Road was tremendous ambition. You needed lots of money, and that money is no more available. So the tide is receding, and when the tide recedes, you can see the reality. But is the reality so bad? Not really, for two reasons. Because you still have sectors where China is performing, and one sector which is threatening Europe terribly is the automotive sector. Because they bought in the uh, electric cars, and they will own, if we, if we don't, if we don't take, take care of them, they will own the market for electric cars. Second, China is still a closed economy. The currency is not convertible. So when you have a market where currency is not convertible, you can really manipulate. If you look at Japan in the 90s, you were mentioning last decade. This is exactly what happened to Japan. Did Japan survive? Yes. How bad was the Japanese situation? Very bad. And still, they're still around. If you go to Japan, well, it's a normal country, and it's still the third economy in the world. Doesn't sound so bad, actually. Doesn't? <laughs> So it's in the interest of all parties to ensure that competition with China does not spiral into conflict. How can the U.S., the EU, and individual European countries cooperate effectively to lessen the likelihood of this happening? I, I think we have to be much, much, much clearer, at least as Europeans, and much firmer about the potential sanctions we would take 
in advance, not after the fact, if ever something happens to Taiwan. Mm. Taiwan is a key issue for the West. On a map, it doesn't look like a key issue. But for democracy, for the balance of powers in the world, Taiwan is a key issue. If, should I say, the West loses Taiwan, we shouldn't say this way, because when you are Taiwanese, you don't belong to the West and you don't feel like the West is supporting you. But it's very important for us to have Taiwan in a status quo situation because it's democracy and it shows also that in Asia and especially in the Chinese world, you can have an open system, an open society, which China doesn't have and which is challenged very strongly by the Chinese authorities. So we have to say very early, if you touch one hair of what's going on there, we will sanction you, and sanction you very directly and very severely. But the point is, as I was mentioning before, how much can we bite the bullet in the West? This remains to be seen. The West, you know, lives in a certain degree of comfort, yeah. and challenging this comfort is not something which can be accepted in the West. And still, we have a lot at stake. So my 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 my, my recommendation, if I may say, or my, 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 my wish, is that we find the appropriate ways to signify that it's very early that we would take sanctions, and not after the fact, if ever the fact happens, which personally I don't believe. I think China is uh, posturing, gesticulating, and what we can see around Taiwan is as much as China can do. And this also should be put in the minds of US politicians, because I, I I'm afraid that the message, according to which what China does currently is as much as it can do, is not passed enough in the U.S. because it's always interpreted as China is a threat and China is really threatening us, which for the moment is only half true. Yeah, yeah. I I think there's a a tendency, especially when you look at statements coming out of the United States to feed the suspicion on the Chinese part that the United States is determined to keep them down almost regardless of what they do. And I think we've done a poor messaging, perhaps, of indicating that there's certain Chinese behaviors that are problematic, but it's not uh, the fact that China is rising in and of itself. But trying to thread that needle seems to be a very difficult thing to do. How do we do that? Is it possible? Well, it's a big question, and it's not only a question for us, but it's a question for the Taiwanese people. Yeah. The Taiwanese people uh, are very uncomfortable with the messages you mentioned. They are not fully comfortable uh, with what they see coming out from the U.S. Yeah. So, Jean-Francois, what are you working on now? What are the big projects you're working on with your center or your scholarship? Yeah, we are very lucky because um, after, I would say, um, 18 years of efforts, we finally won a European mandate from the European Commission on China. We won it in uh, 2022 for three years. Okay. So we are now uh, accomplishing it together with nine other think tanks in Europe. Uh, from seven different countries. So we publish every other week, and we just released a podcast of ours. Yes. Uh, and uh, on, uh, with Jean-Pierre Cabestan, who is a, a non-resident fellow based in Hong Kong for us. Um, and that will keep us very, very busy on China only, which is it's called China Transformations. But we also work on Northeast Asia, uh, Korea and Japan, and South, uh, South Asia, India, basically. As you know, France 
as a very strong in the Pacific policy, mm-hmm. which is new. And we are very much uh, in demand from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, which needs to upgrade the knowledge of what's happening in South Asia, uh, India. So it's a lot. It, sound, it sounds like a lot. And why don't you say the name of your podcast and, and where our listeners can find it if they're interested? Uh, yes, it will be released uh, this week. Uh, and uh, we are still balancing between Asia Voices okay. and other names. Okay. But uh, just uh, look up our website okay. and it will be announced. And what is your website? Uh, AsiaCenter.eu. www. AsiaCenter.eu. And for those regular listeners, they may recall that uh, Jean-Pierre Cavestan was a very early guest on this podcast when it uh, when it reemerged in 2019. And we also had the pleasure of hosting him on campus at that time. So uh, I encourage anyone who's interested to check out uh, the AsiaCenter.eu and this new podcast. Uh, Jean-Francois, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, David. Thank you for the invitation. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.